two weeks since camp. And I want to share once again an encouragement with you over those past two weeks that actually Brad shared with us at camp. There were two illustrations given to us at camp about going deeper, and uh, Brad used the one about spelunking. Do you know what spelunking is? It's caving. Yeah, it's about caving. And Brad talked about going deeper. This is like caving. When do you go deeper? Deeper. Sorry, that's my Polynesian. But um, Craig, Craig, Brad shared about going deeper in caving. And the further you go in, the more difficult it is to go back. And that past two weeks, we were challenged by our brother Mike to go deeper into his word, to go deeper in love for each other, to go deeper in our partnership and our knowledge of Israel, hence Jews for Jesus, deeper in our availability and our faith. What I've discovered in that past two weeks is that the more I've gone deeper, the more I've tasted, the harder it is to go back or even the desire to go back. And that's God's working there. And then Pastor John shared this one. He was gardening. He was sharing with us. He was, I'm, I'm taking all these illustrations from everybody else because they're such great illustrations. And so Pastor John shared that when he was gardening, he was, he was banging, I don't know what it's called. I'll just call it a stick. I don't know if there's any gardening term for it, but he was banging a stick into the ground. And he said, the further you bang it into the ground, the deeper it goes, the more immovable it becomes. The deeper it goes, the more immovable it becomes. Therefore, the deeper we go into the word, the deeper we go into our relationship with Jesus, not only is it more difficult to go back and taste of what we used to have, but rather we become immovable in the spot that we remain in right now. And that the only way, really think about it, the only way you can go is, is deeper still and become more immovable. And so that's my encouragement to you, my challenge to you, that, it, that, you, that you nurture the challenges and the convictions that the Spirit of God has laid upon your heart and, and to continue to go deeper. Now, last week, we started looking at this. We started looking at the God in charge and going deeper in our knowledge of our sovereign God. It was just a skimming. It was just a skimming over a basic truth, a basic biblical truth that God is God, that he is boss, and that he is in control. In the days of Noah, when every imagination of the human heart was only evil continually, God was in control. When, Egypt, when the children of Israel were stuck in Egypt and they were crying out in their oppression as they were in bondage under Pharaoh, God was still in control. In the, in, in the life of, of, of Joshua, or the, the prophets of old when they were persecuted, and time and time and time again, the, the people of God had turned their backs on him, God was still in control. Even up into the New Testament, when you look, when our Lord and Savior was nailed to a cross on trumped-up charges under a mockery of a trial, that God was still in control. And that when you look around today and you see the, the political climate, which is just a hotbed of discussion, when you look at the antagonistic attitudes toward the things of God, specifically the things of Jesus Christ, when you see a world that appears to be sort of falling into a greater, greater pit of indecency and, more, sort of, and immorality, you know what? God is still in control. He always has been, he currently is, and will always be in charge. 
Thus, in light of this first lesson we looked at last week, that God is God and he is boss, it makes this next lesson we look at today, I think for us, something to be so much more appreciative of. That he is not only the sovereign God in charge, but he is also the sovereign God who saves. The sovereign God who rescues. The sovereign God that you and I know through Jesus Christ. So if you'd like to bow your heads with me, we'll open a word of prayer and let's look at the lesson that the Lord has to teach us today. Heavenly Father, we come before you now and thank you that you are in charge, that you are sovereign, that you have all things in your hand, including us as your children. And now as we come before you, we humbly ask that by your spirit, you might minister to our souls. You might speak to our spirits that you might convict us in our hearts, Lord, where we have sought to do our own thing as opposed to rely on you. We ask, Father, that you will give us eyes to see and ears to hear and a spirit that is responsive to your moving this day as we look into your word. Please teach us now in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you've got your Bibles, please turn to Genesis chapter 8, because today's message, basically, well, the, the crux of this message focuses on Genesis chapter 8, verses 1 to 14. But before we get into that chapter, I want us to actually look at one specific point to provide a bit of prior context. Last week, we looked at Genesis chapter 6, how God called Noah, how God utilized Noah, and how God was aiming to... I guess you could say, start again with Noah and his plan of redemption for the whole of humanity. And so I want to look at something in Genesis chapter 7, verses 1 to 24, which I call the God who saves in his way. The God who saves in his way. When you read about it in Genesis 6 and in Genesis 7, you read about the specific, the specific instructions in order to, for Noah to avoid the judgment of God. How he was to make this ark of a specific height, of a specific width, and of a specific length. So too was the cargo named specifically. Two of every animal, whether it's flying, creeping, or crawling, as well as Noah and his family. And the option for those that were interested in, for example, uh, Noah's daughters there, the people they were engaged to, that was all offered to them as well. Now, we only touched on this last week. We looked at how some people have viewed what God had done back then as, as unfair, the unfairness of God and wiping everybody out. But in the 120 years it took for Noah to build the ark, Noah was a preacher of righteousness. Noah was warning the people. He was warning the people of the coming judgment. And through his obedience while he was preaching, his life was an indictment to all who continued to persist in living a life of disobedience. You look at Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7, the, the, the chapter of faith. Hebrews chapter 11 talks about this, how he was a preacher of righteousness. Thus, when the time had come and under God's instruction, Noah entered the ark with all the animals. And then we're told in chapter 7, verse 16, that the Lord shut the door. Once they had shut the door, judgment came. Once the Lord shut the door, it, had all, it was all over. God had passed his final thing, said, this is it. This is the time. 
my judgment falls upon humanity. Can you imagine, can you imagine the regret of all those people that were mocking and scoffing Noah and his family and the actions that they were performing? Can you imagine how they probably ran to Noah and said, let us in, let us in. Like we understand now, we understand, but we're told God shut the door, not Noah. And so even if Noah wanted to, he couldn't even open the door to let anybody else in. This was it. The time of God's, forgive me for, if this may sound wrong, the time for God's grace had come to an end. The time for God's long suffering had finished. The time of God's patience with evil had stopped. And as soon as that happened, God passed judgment. Now I am told in scripture, God is love, yes. I'm told in scripture God is good, yes. But I'm also told in scripture that God is holy, that God is righteous, and God is always just. God had given the world 120 years to repent. 120 years he gave them a chance to turn away from what they were doing and turn to the God who loved them to turn away from their sinfulness, to turn away from their selfishness, to rely on God and believe the word that Noah was proclaiming. So now God had allowed the people to reap the reward of living a life separate from God. They are now reaping the consequences of their free choice. You read in Jeremiah chapter 34, verse 17. I like this verse. We read this. Therefore, this is what the Lord says while he's passing judgment on his people. You have not obeyed me. You have not proclaimed freedom to your own people. So so now I proclaim freedom for you. That's what declares the Lord. Freedom to fall by the sword. Freedom to fall by plague. Freedom to fall by famine. Basically, God is giving people the freedom to suffer the consequences of living a life apart from him, of living a life separate from him. You know what I've noticed as a parent in the years that I've been alive? Well, not the years I've been alive, in the years I've been a parent. Not the years I've been alive. I wasn't, okay, yeah, you know what I mean. All right, anyway, that didn't come out the right way. But you know what I've noticed? That whenever I as a parent try to force my will upon my children, My children don't appreciate it. The older they're getting, the more they do this. (sighs) They plant their feet and they resist. People have asked me, why doesn't God just make us believe? Why? Because then he becomes a tyrant. Then he becomes a dictator. And the more you try to force something on someone, the more they seek to resist. Hence the freedom God gives the people here, the freedom that he gives you and I, even now, he leaves open. And he says this, if this is what you want, you can have it. If you want to live a life separate from me, you can have it. You want to live a life completely selfishly, then you can have it. But be prepared to suffer the consequences of the choice you make. And this is what we are told here within the scriptures. I mean, you see this. The creation does not get to determine to the creator how things ought to be done. My children don't get to dictate to me how they're supposed to be raised. Prisoners in a prison don't get to dictate to the warden how things are supposed to be run. 
They fall into that. It doesn't work that way. And because God is God and he is boss, he is the one that chose to judge in such a manner. He is the one that chose to give patience and give long-suffering and give grace for that 120 years those people were living their own lives. And then it came to an end. So too, we see such goodness manifest toward us in Jesus Christ. That as people who live their lives how they want to live, who live thinking that they are God, who think that they know better than the creator who gave them life, we see people who think they know better, not fully comprehending the greatness of God's love toward them. And that even in their sinfulness, we are told in the scriptures, God commended his love toward them, toward us, that while we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. And that if we would but place our faith in him and in the ark of our salvation, which is Jesus Christ, we too will miss the coming judgment for our sin. But we see this. Once the door is shut, then we see how the rain starts. 40 days and 40 nights of rain. 40 being like the number of trial or of probation or of testing. And then after that, another 150 days of water just covering the earth and Noah floating around with his party of animals. Now with that, we come to Genesis chapter 8, verses 1 to 14. And I'm going to ask my brother Jono if he could come up and read that. If you've got your Bibles, please turn to Genesis chapter 8, verses 1 to 14, because this is the passage I want to focus on for today. Thanks, Jono. This is your large print Bible, Joe? That's my large print Bible, yeah. It's not that large. Really. Oh, this is cool. Genesis 8, 1 to 14. Uh, but God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and the livestock that were with him in the ark. And he sent a wind over the earth, and the waters receded. Now the springs of the deep and the floodgates of the heavens had been closed, and the rain had stopped falling from the sky. The water receded steadily from the earth. At the end of the 150 days, the water had gone down. And on the 17th day of the seventh month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. The waters continued to recede until the 10th month, and on the first day of the 10th month, the tops of the mountains became visible. After 40 days, Noah opened a window he had made in the ark and sent out a raven, and it kept flying back and forth until the water had dried up from the earth. Then he sent out a dove to see if the water had receded from the surface of the ground. But the dove could find nowhere to perch because there was water over all the surface of the earth. So it returned to Noah in the ark. He reached out his hand and took the dove and brought it back to himself in the ark. He waited seven more days and again sent out the dove from the ark. When the dove returned to him in the evening, there in its beak was a freshly plucked olive leaf. Then Noah knew that the water had receded from the earth. He waited seven more days and sent the dove out again, but this time it did not return to him. By the first day of the first month of Noah's 601st year, the water had dried up from the earth. Noah then removed the covering from the ark and saw that the surface of the ground was dry. By the 27th day of the second month, the earth was completely dry. Thanks, Jono. So while we look at the God who is God and he is boss, and we look at how God in his sovereignty chooses to save his way, what I like about this is that even Noah, as he experienced a salvation from God's judgment, now we look at what I call the God who delivers in his way. In Genesis chapter 8, verses 1 to 14. You see, salvation from God's judgment came, 
from God himself. Under the instruction of God, Noah built this ark. He entered it and was able to avoid the judgment that God was passing on humanity. Now we read further along how God, with waters covering the earth, chooses to deliver Noah in his way. That while Noah's salvation from judgment was secured, deliverance from this trial was still to be had. And deliverance that can only come from trusting the Lord, waiting on the Lord, and looking for the Lord's hand. I liken this to our Christian lives, that yes, we are secure in our salvation in Jesus Christ, but we still experience this bobbing up and down in our life, don't we? We still encounter difficult times. We still might encounter various hardships, even as a Christians, bobbing up and down, where we in turn call out to God for deliverance. And this is the focal point of today's message that I would like for us to draw from. We start with the Lord remembering Noah in verse 1. Now, it's not that God had forgotten Noah. It's not like God said, oh, that's right, there's that guy in the boat. It wasn't like that at all. God, we're told, does not forget the needy, Psalm 19, verse 18. Nor can he forget, forget his people like a mother can sometimes forget her nursing child in Isaiah 49, verse 15. So this word remembering here is referring to the recognition and acknowledgement of Noah and the place that he was currently in right now. And with that acknowledgement, we see what I'd like to call the process of deliverance that he does for Noah. Now, what I want you to do is as we go through these things, I want you to see how you can liken these themes or these principles to your own life. And to the own, maybe bobbing up and down, you're going through personally. Because we read this in verse 1. The Lord sends a wind. This is the initial act when the waters begin to recede. You'll notice it's not an instantaneous removal of the water. It wasn't the water miraculously just drying up. But it was the initial point in which God chose to move. Because we read in verses 2 and 3 how the springs of the deep and the floodgates of the heavens had been closed. But the wind had first come. That was the initial thing. The wind had come. Secondly, we read how the receding water brought rest. In verse 4, after the longest time of movement, nearly half a year of him floating around, we see the first physical sign that things had begun to change. For the first time, I think, in months, Noah experienced stillness. And had come to rest on the mountains of Ararat. Have you ever been on a boat? I, I remember in between the North Island and the South Island, there were the ferries that take you over. And one time I was coming back, it was, it was, a, terrible, it was a terrible storm. And it was, just, it was just going up and down, up and down. It was really weird walking because when I would take a step and the floor would just move away from your foot. And so you're taking a larger step down. And when you come out, it comes back up again and you've got a, a, a shorter step up. It was just it was really crazy. And then once we got into port and we got onto solid ground, that was strange. It was sort of like, wow. After having sea legs for a few hours, to actually be on stable ground was really interesting. And it took me a little bit to adjust. This is what Noah would have experienced. 
after months of going up and down, of being buffeted, of bobbing around, now there is stillness. The third thing we see is that the smallest change could now be seen in verse 5. You look in verse 5, he looks out and he can see the tops of mountains that could now be seen by the human eye. After looking at nothing but water day after day after day after day, this was the first indicator for Noah that this wasn't a flash in the pan, but rather that this was more long-term and more widespread by the fact that he could see these small changes happening. Why do I like those three things? Because of the storms that you may be going through in your life, sometimes God, by the Spirit, breathes on us. And he sends forth his Spirit, maybe to stop a floodgate, maybe to stop a depth of a spring, maybe to give you a little bit of a reprieve. But it's something small that God starts doing. You may not actually even recognize it, but you'll start to notice that the bobbing up and down becomes less. That there might be, as Psalm 46.10 says, a being still and knowing that he is God. There might then be the small little changes that you can recognize now to think, wow, God is moving. You see, all, in all of this, Noah in his trusting, Noah in his waiting, and Noah in his observing, with all this taking place, he is not passive in any of this. With everything that's taking place, he recognizes God's doing something, but then, and this is what I like in the fourth part of this chapter, of this text, Noah is active by discovering what God is doing. In verses 6 to 12. And you read this. You read how he sends out a raven in verse 6. It comes back. Then he sends out a dove in verse 8. It comes back. He waits seven days, sends out another dove. It comes back, but this time with an olive leaf. So he waits another seven days in verse 11, I think it is. And then he sends out another dove, and that dove doesn't return. Noah, who is trusting in the deliverance of the Lord, who is trusting in the promise of the Lord that the covenant would continue through him and waited on the provision of the Lord, got to not only go through the greatest of trials, but also experience the greatest of victories and coming out the end of that trial. While he waited, while he trusted, and while he watched what God was doing. Now, what does that teach you and I about our relationship with Jesus, about our Christian journey, about the floods that might be, might be buffeting us even now? What can we learn from Noah's life? What does the example of Noah's salvation and Noah's deliverance have to say about how we trust and about how we wait and about how we look to the Lord? And here's something I want you to consider. That sometimes the deliverance of God takes time that sometimes God is doing something in his time not in ours not because he's unable to do it no not at all but it's done so that we can cope with it it's so that we can deal with it we don't like change we don't instantaneous change we find it difficult to deal with and so God decided to because he's boss to take his deliverance and to, sorry, to deliver Noah in his way. I was thinking about this, like, like, I don't know what floods you've experienced in the past. You may be going through a flood in your life right now. 
You might be feeling overwhelmed with the pressures that have piled on you one after the other, wave after wave after wave after wave, and you find yourself in your Christian life buffeted to and fro, buffeted up and down. You might be questioning things as you look at your life and think, what is going on? But know this, two things. One, your salvation in Christ is secure because it wasn't dependent upon you in the first place. It was by trusting in him and what he has done on the cross for you, that he conquered death when he rose from the dead and that through us trusting in him, we have entered into the ark of our salvation. That's why Jesus says that he is the door. If any man enter in him or through him, they will find life. That's one, know that your salvation is secure, but also this, two, you are not forgotten. You are not forgotten. God has your names written on the palm of his hands. The Lord knows your need. He knows who you are. He knows every hair on your head. If we are told not to worry about what we eat or what we wear because God looks after his creation, then how much more will he look after us? He knows our current state. He knows our current situation. And because we belong to him, bought by the precious blood of the lamb and freed from the bondage and punishment of sin that had us trapped, we have experienced that salvation. Well, the Bible calls that justification that he has set us free in his way, that in his death we have life, that in us becoming less, he becomes more, because that's his way. And two, that he will also deliver us from whatever trial it is that we are facing. It may, it may be instantaneous, like what he did in Mark chapter 4, verse 39, when he said to the storm, peace, be still, or it might be like here, when the time of Noah, where it was a little bit here, a little bit here, and a little bit here, where he might close some doors and slowly bring things back. And maybe the miraculous stopping of the sun to guarantee victory like he did with Joshua in Joshua 10, or it might be the long tumultuous journey of trial after trial after trial until in hindsight, witnessing the providence of God like he did in Joseph's life in Genesis 37 to 50. What I want us to grasp is how God does the big, yes. God does the miraculous, yes. God blesses amazingly, yes. But God is just as present in the small victories. God is just as present in those tiny little triumphs. God is just as present and just as powerful in the big things as he is in the small things. He is still God, he is still sovereign, and he is still boss. And it doesn't matter what it is that we are facing. I remember one, I can't remember the name of the, of the actual person. It was an old school writer who said, there is no, no trial so big that God's power cannot handle and no problem too small that God's love doesn't care for. And I think that's the reality. That's the reality of who we know. And this is an important lesson that we need to remind ourselves in. Something that I was reminded by at Mike at camp. Mike shared a, comfortable, uh, a couple of things. One of the things I really liked, and, and I hear this a lot. 
Mike was sharing with me, and he still keeps in contact with me. He's still praying for you guys as well. He, he, he was so blessed by everybody. And he was going at camp, he goes, you guys are so welcoming. You guys are so loving. We're talking about going deeper in our love and care for each other. And he goes, I don't know if you guys have a problem with that because I've just felt so loved and so cared for. And he was sharing that with me. And I thought, that is true. We are a loving church. We are a caring church. Do, do we welcome people? Yes. Can we improve in welcoming and caring people? Oh, for sure. So much more we can, we can improve, but we can spend so much time looking at everything negative or everything wrong that we do, even as Christians, that we fail to see the greatness of God working in the smallest of ways, even within our lives. We can overlook those things. We can dismiss those things. We can, I mean, think about it. Pam shared a wonderful fact this morning. It is so awesome to see so many kids at church. That is such a blessing. They're not irritating. They're not annoying. At camp, they were, I, loved, I loved playing with Jonah when he, when he licked my head. Okay, I'll, I'll tell you that story later. But I loved doing riddles with, with Jenna and Jeremy and, and Olivia. I loved playing. I taught Jeremy, all the people in New Zealand, you like this? I taught Jeremy how to bomb in the pool, how to make big splashes in the pool. He picked it up like that. I'm like, yeah, that was awesome. But you see how we fail to see how we, we, we look about how we're going to witness, how we're going to share the gospel with people, how we're going to invest into people's lives, how we're going to disciple. You know what? Upstairs, we've got 30 odd kids in need of discipleship. Upstairs, we have 30 odd kids that we can love with the love of Jesus and show them the reality of God in their lives. Parents of those 30 kids, imagine the privilege you have now to raise those children in the ways of Jesus Christ. Are they perfect? Oh, no. But God has blessed you with them to bring them up knowing him. That's the blessing that you have and the blessing that we as a church family have by investing into their souls as well. We have a captive audience to share the gospel with these kids and show them the reality of Jesus Christ. What do we see? We see, oh, they want food, they want this, they want the other. See what I mean? We, we need to change our perspective and view those souls as the way Jesus views them, to view our neighbors as the way Jesus sees them, to view each other as the way Jesus sees you. That we're not spending all our time being negative, that you're not doing something, but rather look at the victory that God has done in your life. Look at the triumph and the trial God has taken you through. And I think we need to see this, that in the little things God is working, it may be praying more. It may be getting deeper into your Bible more purposefully and intentionally. It may be the choice to turn off a TV and rather call someone up and say, can you have a coffee? It may be something small, maybe having a meal, it may be sending a text, it may be just spending time praying, it may be loving your kids, loving your spouse, loving your brother and sister in Christ, even when they're not the most lovable. Those are the victories where God is just as present as the big deliverance from a person from addiction or the big deliverance from a person from illness. Not saying God is any less. Please don't get me wrong. Those are miraculous things. But let us not discount the little things God does because they're just as great. 
To behold the greatness of God and the smallest of things reveals the greatness of his love to be directly involved with the smallest of things in each of our lives. The greatness of his love. And it's why I labeled this third point in light of how God saves and in light of how he delivers in his way means that you and I as his children need to get better and more proficient at knowing and recognizing the God who works in his way. He does what he does. At times we're given an insight, other times we might be completely clueless. But God does things so differently and so uniquely that if we are not drawing closer to him or spending time with him or getting to know him better, we can end up being frustrated in life because we think our heavenly uh, because we think that he's not moving. But he's doing it continually. Our our heavenly mindedness, if we're not drawing close to him, becomes more earthly focused. Our desire for eternity is replaced with a worldly security. And when that happens, we might get stir crazy in our lives. You know what stir crazy is? It's when you're trapped in a confined space for an extended amount of time. A lot of people experienced this during COVID last year. When you're in a confined space for an extended amount of time and you go stir crazy, I can't stand being around this person. I can't stand doing this. We get frustrated. See, if we're not drawing close to the Lord Jesus, then we find that frustration. Why? Because our eyes are taken off him and onto me. What aren't you doing for me? What needs of mine that are, are you not meeting? What are you not blessing me with? It becomes about me, me, me. Noah could have gotten that way in the ark, but rather Noah's more concerned on trusting the Lord, waiting on the Lord, and looking to see the Lord work. Maybe that's what I need to be doing as well. Waiting on the Lord, trusting the Lord, and looking at even the smallest of things of the hand of God in your lives as well. And in my life. The way God works, the people God uses, the methods God employs, the wisdom God exercises fly in the face and is in direct contradiction of everything I would do as a person. Everything I would do as a person. You look at the scriptures. I've, I've just paraphrased them as we go along. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 to 29. I'll read it for you. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were. I like that word. Think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But... God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. These are the people God uses. You know what that's a description of? Me. Foolish, weak, if you want to use layman's term, Stupid, that's me. Those are the people God uses. You carry on. You look at the ways God uses. Second Corinthians chapter 12, verses 8 to 10 says this. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. His trial, his thorn in the flesh, Paul was writing here. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. 
This is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. That's his ways. He uses weak, foolish, ignorant people. He, he, the way he uses them, well, it's in that weakness my strength is made perfect. It is in that weakness I can move. It is in that weakness, so you're not relying on yourself but on me. It is in that weakness my fullness comes about. You look at the methods that he uses. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1-5. to five. And so it was with me. Brothers and sisters, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you, I like this, in weakness, with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom but on God's power. You look at these three passages. These three passages alone fly in the face of what you and I would do. We want the most qualified. We want the strongest person. We want the most articulate. We want the most confident. We want the most charismatic. We want the most of these people. God says, no, I want the weak. I want the fool. I want those that, that, that would much rather rely on me rather than rely on themselves. And you look at the wisdom of God. In Isaiah 55, his eighth level, last passage, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways, uh, your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts and your thoughts. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return without it watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. This is uh, the, the ways, the methods, the wisdom of God that he uses in us. And he does so for my benefit. Because when you look at the likes of, say, Acts chapter 4, verse 13, the way the disciples are described is that they were recognized as being unlearned men. But they did take away this, that they had been with Jesus. We benefit from this. That God would employ such a person as I, such a person as Jono and Evelyn, such a person as Chris and Uncle Eugene and Auntie Milan, that he would employ us to be his vessels to show the greatness of who he is to others. That's amazing because that is the way he chooses to work. If you and I could come to a better understanding of this simplistic truth, then you and I can start to see God's hand moving in this church, except that God is delivering his people in this church in his way. And if we make the effort, we would jump on board with what God is doing in his way as we hold on to him and move forward. That the God who saved us from our sin is the same God who would deliver us from our apathy or from our religious ritual, or from our spiritual drought. When we, like Noah, follow his instruction obediently. And, and, and not what I think his word says, but what his word says for himself. That you and I would trust in his provision wholly, not only in his sacrifice on the cross for our sin, but it's all conquering power that enables us to live in victory as well. And that we see his hand moving, even in the small things, intentionally. 
not wishful thinking or, or reading into stuff, but seeing each opportunity to glorify God, each chance to bless others for the glory of God, every temptation to overcome for the glory of God. To behold such things as, these, as this changes my vision from me to him because that vision toward him is the safest place for me to look. It is the safest place for me to look, to receive hope, to receive confidence, and to receive comfort. That is what we can draw from the life of Noah, not because Noah is great, but because the God Noah served is great. And with that, I would like to invite the music team back up again to close in a song which I think is appropriate for us this morning. So if you'd like to be upstanding, uh, we'll sing a song and then I will close in prayer after that. In the darkness we were waiting Without hope or without light Till from heaven you came running There was mercy in your eyes To fulfill the law and prophets To a virgin came the word From the throne of endless glory To a cradle in the Yeah. 
stone was moved for good, for the Lamb had conquered death. And the dead rose from their tombs, and the angels stood in awe, for the souls of all who'd come to the Father are restored. And the church of Christ was born, then the Spirit lit the flame, this gospel truth of old shall not kneel, shall not faint. By his blood and in his name, in his freedom I am free. For the love of Jesus Christ, who has resurrected me. Praise the Father. sovereign, you are righteous, you are our Father. We thank you so much for your Son, Jesus Christ, who has made us brand new, that through faith in Him, you have not only saved us from our sin, you have delivered us from the enemy, you have delivered us from this world, you've delivered us for yourself. So now we ask, as you dismiss us this morning, that we as your people will submit to your word, we would heed your spirit. We walk obediently upon your promises for your glory and for your glory alone. Now unto him who is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or imagine according to the power that works within us. Unto you be glory in the church, both now and forever, even to the end of the, day, end of the age. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Thank you very much, brothers and sisters. Thank you very much, everybody at home. Have a lovely day. Keep looking up. We'll see you next week.